Today is Sunday, November 6, 2016, and this is episode 176 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hello, Jerry, and happy day after Guy Fox Day. Likewise, happy day after Guy Fox Day to you, too. I, I hope your anarchistic tendencies were well exercised. Th- they were, they were. I went and bought some random crap at Michael's and, you know, just had a fire in the backyard and... uh yeah, we had it. We had our anonymous masks on and everything. It was, uh, it was, it was grand. So, because Georgia's in a big drought and we're under a ban- fire ban, burn. This was burn ban. This was your anarchistic tendency was to burn when you're not supposed to, because that's how metal you are. That's exactly right. Wow. I stuck it to the man. Just <laughs> anyhow, um, <clears throat> just a uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So, um, so yeah, this is our, our first show post, um, you know, post O'Reilly security conference. And, uh, I definitely want to say thanks again for, uh, the invitation and, um, had, a, had a good time. I think we talked a lot about our, our, our thoughts last, last time. I, you know, we, I didn't go to as many talks on the second day. I had a lot more talking to people, um, but uh, anyway, did you have any... Including those police officers that really wanted to talk to you. Well, that that all, almost always happens. Mm-hmm. I did. I did go to a lot of good talks on the second day. And the keynotes on the second day were pretty good, too. Um, you know, I'd have to go back and take a look at my notes. But uh, there were some pretty cool keynotes on the second day and some other cool classes. We, The one thing I really wanted to see, we had to leave for to to head home. Uh, but it was still great. And we ran into more fans of the show. And I will tell you, I had a bit of a surrealistic moment when uh, there's a forthcoming book coming out uh, uh, from O'Reilly on ransomware, which I did a a little bit of a technical review on. And I met the guys who wrote the book and I was like, Hey guys, I just want to say, you know, you, you, this is a really cool book. I don't know if you know, but I helped do some technical editing on it. I hope you didn't find my, my comments too harsh or, you know, please don't hate me. And they're like, Oh, we're huge fans of the show. And I'm like, wow, that's just surreal. So that was awesome to, to like, you know, go up to say something to somebody that you that was making a thing that you respected and liked and was hoping was going to do well and they happen to know about the thing we make and it was it was kind of cool not you know quite a thing sounds like quite a thing yeah well i'm just not used to that well you know get used to it Mm -hmm. but there was lots of other people there too who knew the show and like wow we uh it's more than just our parents listening now is what i'm trying to say Uh, that's true that's true. There, I mean, there are the people. There are still people in Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we did find out the next O'Reilly show in the U.S. in New York is going to be again over Halloween in New York City, which is good and bad. I like the show, but I kind of hate missing Halloween. New York City. Yeah. I will. I will say the weather, um, at least um, the weekend prior, was absolutely phenomenal. In New York City, I got to stay over and uh, I hung out at Central Park, went to World Trade Center, and it was 
fantastic. Um, I, you know, I did want to I did want to mention one cool thing, and and I I think the video is posted online of, of one of the keynotes, which was about the Grand Challenge, the DARPA Grand Challenge, mm-hmm. which was a really cool talk. The concept was that uh, they had these. I didn't get to see the whole talk because I was actually busy releasing last week's podcast as that one started. But anyway, um, the 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 concept was uh, they pitted two two different artificial intelligence computers against each other. One intended to attack and one intended to defend. And uh, and you know, it, it, I think the idea was that the uh, the attacking computer had to try to find you know a novel way to exploit, identify, and then exploit some uh, unknown vulnerability or, or unknown to it vulnerability in the code. And then the other computer had to try to defend, you know, by kind of on the fly patching. And what ended up happening was, and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this a little bit, but uh, an actually unknown to the, the program administrator's vulnerability was identified by the, you know, by the attacking computer, which wasn't, which wasn't part of the game. And, uh, and then the, um, the, the the computer that was defending actually detected that attack and um, on the fly patched some software that really wasn't intended to patch. So that was uh, that was pretty pretty cool, you know. If in fact it happened the way it was described. Um, yeah, yeah. The whole interesting concept is AI that can automatically defend itself, figure out unknown flaws in itself or as as it's being exploited and automatically in a real time patch and, and deploy defenses and you know be sort of resilient self-healing and self-defending sort of code as well as ai that you know finds ways to attack so you know they were looking at the, and they described some of the problems of 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 basic functional testing of things that would take you know 10,000 man hours that the ai could run through in like a minute and find things. And, and it's pretty interesting. It was pretty interesting. And I'm pretty sure this is how Skynet rises, but it's also could potentially be the future of this sort of defense. If we, you know, you bolt on an AI defense module to the operating system. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, you know, the thing that kind of is a little unsettling, I'm not going to say scary, but it's unsettling is that you can when you when you hear that being described you can see the future and the future is artificial intelligence attackers and ai defenders and when when that really starts to happen we humans more or less don't have an opportunity to to really even understand what the heck's going on i mean maybe on a certain time scale we could right but certainly not in in more or less real time and that's um that's going to make things interesting. Yeah, and it's sort of, I mean, it's the way of things. I mean, look at how IPS is early in the InfoSec life cycle started doing automatic defense. Now, it's more signature-based and such, but inline defenses have been something that we have been moving more and more towards to do automated defending. You know, you look at WAFs, they, they learn normal behavior on the web apps that they're defending and learn how to block things that are not normal. So, you know, it's a little cliched and markety buzzwordy to say that attacks are moving faster than humans can react, but I think it's true. I think when we start getting to 
the level we're at with these sorts of massive distributed attacks and very smart attacks, it may become via the only viable option may become some sort of automated adaptive defense system like this. We're a long way away from that, but it's really intriguing technology. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, anything else you wanted to cover about the, the conference? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm really glad we went. Uh, I think um, there's a lot of good content there. It's the first one, so I think it's just going to keep getting better. Uh, I made the joke that you and I need to work on a keynote for next time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we'll see if, if we can pull that off. We uh, on, on the conference topic, uh, B-Sides Atlanta is coming up next weekend. Right now it's Sunday, so it's six days out. Uh, I had planned to be there, but I now have a scheduling conflict, and I cannot be there. So uh, I released, I know, I released my ticket back into the world. Yeah. But you'll be there, I think. I will be there, and I think uh, well, you know, Martin Fisher will be there, and uh, so will a bunch of others. So if you're in the area and have a ticket, come on by. Uh, anyway, um, let's get into our stories, and the first of which comes from Ars Technica, and the title here is uh, Windows Zero Day Exploited by the Same Group Behind DNC Attack. And you know what's what's interesting is, that's while that's the headline, that's almost not actually the headline. The headline here, in, in my view at least, is the scuffle that's happening between Google and Microsoft. And um, so, so the... I guess it was probably about two weeks ago now. Uh, Google is part of their, uh, I think it's Project Zero is theirs. Um, they, they identified uh, vulnerability in Adobe Flash and then uh, privilege escalation in Windows. So both zero days. And um, the, the way they identified it was actually, uh, apparently they detected it being exploited in the wild. And uh, Google has Google's Project Zero has a, a, a policy that says uh, once once they notify a vendor of a zero day in the wild, uh, they um, they start the clock on a seven day timer, and uh, if the vendor has seven days to to patch or well, I guess whether or not they patch the 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 news goes public uh, by Google. That's their policy. Uh, so apparently Adobe patched, Adobe released a patch within the seven days and Microsoft did not. Uh, Microsoft says that they are in fact working to um, to release a patch as part of the Patch Tuesday, which will be the day after tomorrow. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anything spectacular. We see Windows privilege escalation flaws all the time. The, I think the new news here is, you know, A... The, the kerfuffle between Google and Microsoft where, you know, Microsoft is saying that Google's being unreasonable and putting their customers at risk. And this is the, you know, the, the full disclosure debate, you know, ad infinitum all, all over again. Uh, and then B, the, the, the group that apparently allegedly was seen using these attacks or using this, uh, the, this, this zero day, is uh, known as APT28, a.k.a. Fancy Bear, Fancy Bear a.k.a. Strontium, so, uh, which is a.k.a. the group that hacked uh, John Podesta's email. 
which was a super, super sophisticated attack that involved a uh, phishing email. So, <laughs> And boy, did that guy write a lot of email. Holy crap. Say. Yeah. By the way, I do. I did want to mention that. I think, um, I don't know if that's the end of it, right? But WikiLeaks posted another like 2,500. And that, that brings his, his email dump up to 52,000 emails. And I got to say, what the heck else did he do other than write emails? Well, you know, when you're trying to help somebody out by telling them about their Nigerian prince relative who died, and all they need to do is, is send you $3,000 to release the money. It's complicated. Uh, that's it, true. It takes work, it, you know? That's true. Some, somebody on Twitter told me today, it was there's probably some like out-of-office loops. In there. <laughs> yeah, that'd be funny. <laughs> that'd be hilarious. Well, which, you know, not to get into politics, but in other email news, um, you know, the FBI reopened their investigation to Hillary Clinton when Anthony Weiner's hard drive got seized and they found like another 150,000 some odd emails and they went through them in three days or five days or some short period of time. And I had the same thought. What if a bunch of them were, you know, just out of office loops, reply all loops <laughs> that just <laughs> stop replying all for God's sake. Oh my God. Um, but unsubscribe, uh, unsubscribe. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Um, But back to the the Windows story. Yeah, this is not the first time that Google and a vendor has gotten into a fight. And Google's policy is very well known and very laid out at this point. And I kind of side with Google on this one. You know, they they said, look, this is is our version of responsible disclosure. This is how long we're going to give you. And I think they have found probably the best of the worst options. Uh, in the whole responsible disclosure debate because they give the vendor time, whether or not it's enough time is, is debatable. But then they say, if you're not going to deal with it, we are going to release it publicly, which often forces a vendor to deal with it. Now, this yeah. is, they're not targeting Microsoft by this. They've done this with a lot of vendors and they've gotten into this sort of, you know, as you said, kerfuffle with a number of other vendors over the same thing. It's it's a tough balance. We've been having this responsible disclosure debate since the beginning of time. Uh, I did see that, that you know, Microsoft uh, loses no opportunity to pimp Windows 10. Uh, you know, they say, well, you know, we're working on a patch. In the meantime, you should be running Windows 10. Yeah, Windows 10 apparently solves everything because their uh, their their AP, ATP, which I assume is a you know a a, a clever play on APT, mm-hmm. uh, will apparently defend against the, this particular uh, this, this particular exploit. Uh, but you know, I I agree. This is a this is a tenuous thing, right? But if you see something, if if uh, if a company like Google sees this being exploited in the wild, it's it's kind of perilous not to, you know, for it not to be known, right? And and so, um, you know, but I, I I would rather know about the exploit even if I don't have a patch, right? Because a patch is not my only option. Yeah. There are other things I may be able to do to mitigate that issue, or I could watch for it at least and alert my cert teams or my my knock. But this is going on in the wild. So if you see weird stuff like XYZ, it's probably this. I could upgrade to Windows 10. Oh, yeah. But it's it's good to know. You know, like I just saw another alert today of, of uh, some some critical volumes came out in MySQL. And my only option isn't just a patch. My other option is to start alerting MySQL admins. 
and my security guys and my knock guys and everybody, hey, this is going on. So if you see anything weird happening with SQL, this might be it. Or perhaps I, I take some other steps. Maybe in terms of if it's a website, I could do something with my WAF or do something with my firewall or do something with my IPS. So to say my only option is a patch and all things must revolve around patch release dates, I think is naive and short-sighted. Well, I, I, this is this is the discussion we've had in a lot in the past that vulnerability management for many firms is you know synonymous with patch management, right? And that's that's really wrong-headed because there are a lot of you know both there's a lot of vulnerabilities in quotes that aren't part of a patch, right? They're they're weaknesses or configuration errors or, mm-hmm. or what have you, uh, and then and then you have this this sort of scenario. So. Um, now that being said, I I do think people should patch and patch quickly and aggressively. Yeah, and you know the other thing that that strikes me too is that, um, again, this was a, a a bit of a kerfuffle, but a lot of organizations treat local privilege escalation bugs as as fairly low priority. And this is something that we actually talk about it, I think, in another story. And so I'll kind of save my commentary there. But I don't know that you should do that anymore. You know, I think we're still fighting this concept of perimeter defense, which is important, but it's not the only play. And I think a lot of vulnerability management programs that were built five years ago or 10 years ago, or at least the concept around them or how you measure around them, are this concept of tighten everything at the edge. Make sure everything at the edge is really, really tight. And then, you know, the inside's not that big a deal. Well, that's not how attacks happen anymore. Most attacks start with a successful fish and, and a successful credential steal. Right. And, you know, a foot, you know, a, a foothold being established on an internal box. Yep. So it's um, it is best practice to uh, to, to get those local privilege privilege escalation bugs fixed uh, quickly, too, because you don't know how they're going to get on there. And but once they do. Um, yeah, I, I, we've beat this that that topic into the ground. We have, patch your we have. patch your privilege escalation bugs. It's important. It might not seem important, but get it done. So moving on to our next story, which comes from helpnetsecurity.com. The title is Overconfidence is Putting Organizations at High Risk for Attacks. Ah, uh, yes. This is a story that had the, that, that cued the comment about spending too much time focused on the perimeter. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so Accenture, the consultancy, surveyed 2,000 enterprise security practitioners uh, of uh, working for firms of $1 billion or more spanning 15 different countries. And uh, they, they noted, noted a couple of things like, for instance, that the, uh, there's a, there's a big discrepancy between the level of confidence these, these security practitioners have about their ability to um, you know, both defend and detect a breach uh, versus what's actually happening. And, uh, and and so that kind of right out of the shoot, there's a there's a a pretty big disconnect. Uh, so for instance, they say that uh, the survey reveals the length of time to detect these security breaches often compounds the problems. More than half of executives, 51%, disclose that it takes months to detect sophisticated breaches, and as many as a third of all successful breaches are not discovered by the security team. You know, and then they it. it Earlier in the article, they talk about how in the past 12 months, roughly one in three targeted attacks results in an actual security breach, which equates to two or th- two to three effective attacks per month for the average 
company. Now, I have a little bit of trouble with with that. I mean, I, I've not heard that particular metric before. It wouldn't necessarily be terribly surprising. Well, um, I, I don't agree with it. That's like saying every single corporation or every single network is having you know, two to three effective attacks per month. Maybe yeah. on average, maybe. But what's an effective attack, right? Is that ransomware, which is no big deal? Is it, I mean... In, in theory, a single ransomware box or a single virus hitting a box or, you know, what's an effective attack? Right. Yep. Uh, you know, certainly, certainly not uh, news making career ending attacks. No, no would the, the, there would be much more blood in the streets than there actually is. I do wonder, though, maybe, you know, maybe like ransomware is, um, is being c- counted in there. But um, anyway, it, it does it does point out the the disconnect between, you know, again, between the level of confidence of, of um, executives and what's actually happening in the ground is if, if their numbers are real. Um, let's see. They, th- there were a couple of interesting things in here, and they, um, they, they asked, so f- if you were able to uh, get additional budget, what would you spend it on? And 54, between 44 and 54%, said they would double down on current spending priorities. And that sounds on the surface like a really, you know, kind of a silly thing to say. Like, you know, I, you know, I spend, uh, I spend a bunch of money on antivirus and I'm going to go buy more antivirus. But that's actually, when you, when you look at their, the way they chunk it up, it's, that's not actually apparently what they're, what they're saying. So they're saying they would double down on, uh, on their uh, security priorities, including protecting the company's reputation, safeguarding g- the company's information, and protecting cu- uh, customer data, which doesn't seem all that odd to me. And I think where the you know where where Accenture was kind of going with this point was, it's surprising that so few companies are not prioritizing things like mitigating against financial loss. Which I well, I infer is cyber insurance. Let's keep in mind that Accenture is running a special on that this week, two for one. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm quite sure if you call them up, they will they will help you out with all these problems. So, how much cyber insurance would you like to buy today? That's right. That's right. You know one one thing that I struggle with, and this is something we've talked about before, is measuring cyber defense efficacy based solely around budget spent. Now, it matters. Don't get me wrong. But it is not the entire picture. Not by a long shot. And it really frustrates me that we're measuring it solely on this. Because I could take two companies that spend, let's just round it to 10% uh, you know, of, their, of their G&A on cyber. Depending on who they have in place, how they're implementing that, inf- that, that, those tools, those technologies, what their staffing is like, what their culture is like, has as much or more impact than their spend. Now, granted, there is a spot where you go below a minimum spend level where you're just, it doesn't matter, right? You're, you're hurting yourself because you just don't have the basics in place. You don't have table stakes in place. But how you run that gear and your thoughtfulness and creativity in how you design and run your network and your business processes and, and the people you have in place, it's a people, process, and technology problem. And when you talk about spend, more often than not, you're only looking at the technology and not even how you're employing that technology. So I get frustrated with that metric. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It, re- it reminds me of a book I read recently called The Drunkard. Oh, jeez. I know. It's, ca- it's called The Drunkard's Walk. It's, it's really good. And The Drunkard's Walk is actually about um, uh, chaos theory. And uh, it doesn't sound like it would be, but it is. And and the, the point is that chaos and, and complexity theory basically boil down to sensitive dependence on initial conditions, right? And the initial conditions are, what kind of technology do you use? How's your network laid out? What kind of people do you have? You know, are, are your operations scattered here, there, and everywhere? What industry are you in? And on and on and on and on. And, and so each one of those variables is going to dramatically alter how you can line up companies and compare them against each other. Right. And so even, so, even in the same vertical. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because that's such a common asked question by executives is how am I doing against the, 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 the vertical I'm in, my peers and my vertical. Right. Which is a maddening question to ask. Is it the ones that use, using the mainframes or the ones not using the mainframes? Is it the ones, <laughs> you know, <laughs> was it the ones using Linux or the ones using Windows or the ones using both? You know, that there's that's a really, really difficult question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is tough. And, you know, the one thing I, I did want to say as well is that uh, Kanye West the other day was telling me I name dropped too much. So I think you may be book really? name dropping too much. So I think I think we need like a sound effect for every time you drop a book you read. Okay. I, I, I will say I, I, I did like the book. So if, if anybody wants to read it, I, I recommend it. Are you getting kickbacks from publishers I'm not aware of? No, no, I... See, I made a made a big mistake. I got an Audible. dot com oh. subscription. <laughs> also, wait, is that another non non sponsor that you're pimping for free? No, no, I <clears throat> it it will suck the it will suck any free time you have. So that's I, true. You know, I caveat emptor. For the record, we don't have sponsors, but you know, caveat emptor. Um, no, anyway, back to the point. I. When we when we start talking about how spend is going, I think there's definitely too little spend, and but once you get to a certain sustainable level for your organization, then it comes down to how you spend and what you're doing with those tools that I think matters more than just your spend rate. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, let's see, they they had a couple of other things in here, and they they pointed out that um, the survey the the survey asked the respondents. You know what? Are they more concerned, or, or you know, let me say that differently. Do internal breaches or external breaches, uh, in terms of originating, right, where the breach originated from? Which one of those has the more significant impact? And um, you know, most of them said that the uh, the internal breaches have the the more significant impact. However, uh, most of these executives point out that they prioritize spending on perimeter-based controls, which don't really do much on the internal threat. So there's, again, there's a disconnect between, it's like a logical disconnect in the mind, apparent logical disconnect in the minds of these well, people. Well, I, I don't think it's logical. Isn't it? I think it's that they're fighting the last war. I think they're mm-hmm. not keeping up. And I think this happens, especially with large organizations. Their, their policy and the process becomes very entrenched. And and their their corporate bureaucracy and their metrics and their measuring programs become very much a feedback loop to fight innovation, because those people are spending the same time, they could be doing something else, focusing on the last threat. Now the bad guys keep adapting, and so if our programs don't adapt, we 
you know, aren't going to keep up. Now, not to say that perimeter isn't important. I kind of look at it like a tank and the evolution of a tank. And you don't, you know, when we started looking at what tanks were protecting against, it was small arms fire, medium, medium-sized fire. And, and the armor kept having to scale up and adapt to different new attack techniques, but it also didn't lose its original defense against the original technique. Now, that's tough when you've got the same budget going against both. But I do think a lot of the executives sort of who are driving these programs, driving these these goals are like, yeah, yeah, you know, firewall, perimeter, secure my stuff. All right, let's get back to, you know, how I make more money for the company. And and I think that's where we're starting to lose some perspective of how the, how the risks are changing and how the bad guys are shifting to other approaches uh, that we're not keeping up with. Maybe so. I have a... I have a a more, I don't know if it's a draconian or pedestrian. I'm not sure uh, excuse or or explanation. I like to throw out. Well, and that's, which book did did no, you no, read? No, it no, no. It's it's a uh, it. I it's come com- on now. There's you no book. It's no book. No book. Are you sure? I'm sure. Compliance, right? Compliance yeah. does not typically. I mean, except for in a few in a few industries like banking and uh, in in healthcare. Uh, most other compliance regimes don't really do a lot with the insider threat, but they're very, very heavily focused on perimeter. Well, I think that that absolutely is the issue, right? Those compliance regulations were built when perimeter was the threat. And they haven't adapted and kept up. Exactly. And uh, I think, you know, you're starting to see this now. I think PCI is saying, hey, you know, it's forcing two-factor by 2018 on all of your in-scope, I think. Well, let me be careful. I don't know this one percent. There is a two-factor mandate coming with the next version of PCI that is becoming effective in 2018. I don't know the exact scope, but it is more of an insider use, admin use kind of two-factor use, which you know is at least a nod towards that. But we are definitely not addressing with our compliance and quote-unquote best practices these internal internal pivots and internal risk. And when we say internal risk, it's not just internal people going rogue it's their systems and their access being co-opted by bad guys yeah and i think the the two-factor authentication definitely helps in the latter but not really in the former right so if if you have an employee go rogue your two-factor isn't really going to help a lot with that but it will generally help if uh, you know if i look at the percentage of likely attack avenues you know, internal threat is, of course, an issue, but I don't think it's nearly as likely as password reuse and password, password capture and you know, bad guys getting into my network and, you know, running around. Yeah, it's that, that's um, be an interesting area of study. I know that, for instance, we don't have the story here tonight, but, you know, the, uh, the, the OCC announced that one of one of their former employees who retired walked out the door with a bunch of data on... A USB drive, and and that was you know but one of a, of a whole bunch in in the in the different banking regulators here in the U.S. Similar types of things that happen, and I I do think it's it's a little common, but I think that uh, th- those tend to be not necessarily looked at looked at as you know quote cyber attacks right because if I log you know if I have access to a system to log in and you know, download some data to my computer. It's not really a cyber attack, 
right? And, no, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't that wasn't necessarily malicious in his intent. It was to no. do work at home, right? Uh, I'm that part was a or little. Am I, am I, yeah, am I thinking of a different case? You're thinking of a different case. This one was uh, okay. was detected, I think, after the guy retired or right before the guy. I don't remember exactly, but he he uh, yeah he he was he was taking some work home with him, but I don't think it was. I also don't think it was malicious, from what I recall right. reading. So yeah, um, you, you know that again kind of talks to that concept of some employees are just trying to get their work done, and so they're going to find ways around your security policies without even necessarily understanding the implications of what they're doing. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, uh, moving on to our next story, which comes from bankinfosecurity.com, and the title is Suing Anthem to Seek Security Audit. Uh, those Suing Anthem Seek Security Audit Documents. Uh, so as you probably are uh, recall or or remember hearing in the news anthem had a very high profile data breach back in 2000 early 2015 where uh, approximately 80 million records were stolen out of a database and there's been a lot of uh in a lot of hoopla but what's what's new here is that uh, there are i think it was close to 200 uh, independent law. Oh, sorry, 100 lawsuits, which have recently been consolidated into one federal class action lawsuit, and now that class action lawsuit is actually uh, petitioning the court to force the Office of Personal Management, who, by the way, was also the subject of a breach, uh, uh, to have that the OPM turn over some audit documentation and. The reason that's that's interesting is that the OPM, the Office of Inspector General of the OPM, performs uh, security audits on healthcare providers. I, I believe it's healthcare providers that that uh, you know provide health insurance to government employees. Thinking again, the OPM is like the the HR department for the U.S. federal government, right? So they contract with these. Um, um, you know, healthcare or health insurance providers, of which Anthem was one, and they they periodically do these security audits, and uh, and so so the um, the the plaintiff attorneys filed an eight hundred and twenty seven page document with the 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 court in this lawsuit asking for a small number of documents uh, produced by the OPM related to a 2000, 2013 security audit and then a follow-on audit in 2015. And uh, there's there's some interesting things that have come out in here. So, for instance, that uh, Anthem apparently in, in their 2013 audit denied the OPM's request to perform a, a, a pen test or a Vuln scan. It's really not clear exactly what... Uh, what they wanted to do, but basically, they wanted the OPM wanted to do some kind of technical testing, and Anthem said no, we don't allow that per our policy, and and uh, so they did some kind of a what I assume to be a paper based audit, and it looks like that more or less came you know was pretty clean, and then after the after the breach was announced in 2015, OPM came back and did a um, did another audit and again was told, no, you can't connect to our network, uh, go away. So the, 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 
the lawsuit here seeks to provide information which may you know de determine whether or not the um, you know the, the the OPM identified weaknesses at the time in in uh, Anthem security program, which would be material to uh, to their case against Anthem. So, all that being said, you know I, I think the the and, and this is the reason I think you brought it up, right? Is is the more kind of the moral hazard exactly approach here, right? Where yep. you know now we have an instance where audit information is is potentially going to be discovered in a you know in a, in a lawsuit in court in open court, and what is the what is the you know the macro impact on the IT industry because most all of us are subject to some kind of audit or other. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's frustrating to me because there are a lot of times those audits may may be taken out of context. Uh, they they may be things that yes we know but we we've made a business decision to work on something else or we're going to get to it later. Or so the implication is if you kind of read into this is okay you were warned about this vulnerability you knew about this and you did nothing about it. Well that's a very myopic view of it's not that we sat there with our with you know twirling our thumbs we were working on other issues. So now do you start to hesitate to have audits performed by third parties because they could become uh, subpoenaed into a court case against you, which is really scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do wonder, I know here in the U S we have, um, we have the concept of attorney client privilege and it is, it is not uncommon for companies to, um, to do a lot of, a lot of things, especially when they have internal legal counsel, uh, to yeah, they need to be a large enough company to to afford in, yeah. internal legal, typically. Yeah, uh, but I think even even sometimes with external legal counsel, right, the, so, mm. certain things will be performed under uh, under um, you know the, the legal privilege umbrella. I, I do wonder if potentially, I mean, it, there's a spectrum of possible outcomes here, right? On the one hand, I think it could drive it could drive some behavior to say, you know what, we're it's kind of risky to have an audit, right? Because now we're creating artifacts that could be used against us because they're, you know, they're, they don't accurately represent what, what was actually going on. It was just from the narrow perspective of, of this, this audit, which, you know, in, in the future, if we were breached and somebody were to look at that, they would see that, you know, we had eight character passwords, but they didn't see that we were, you know, whatever. Right. Um, so, so, that's I think that's an, a possible outcome. Another possible outcome is that more and more of this stuff will be done, you know, driven by a lawyer, right? It will be will be performed under the auspices of legal privilege, which I think is a tenuous thing. I'm not a lawyer. I do know some about legal privilege, um, but I, I do think that um, you know th this in this particular case, one of the topics that's being debated is the the uh, I believe the uh, one at least one of the reports is held under legal privilege and so the 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 plaintiffs are trying to vacate that or trying to convince the judge that you know the the needs of the plaintiffs outweigh the needs of the um, you know the privacy needs of the the defendant so right um, that'll be an interesting point specifically in this case as well I think yeah, definitely. And uh, it, it, it's also interesting, you know, if you extrapolate this out a bit, let's say I get an annual pen test from a number of different third-party organizations. And even though we file a, a non-disclosure, 
legal subpoenas and such can can override that. So that's something that would be of concern to mine if this starts to become precedent and starts to become uh, an ongoing thing in in the in the wake of a breach. Yeah, absolutely. So more you know more to come on this. I I I think it's going to be a bit of a dangerous precedent, but at the same time, I can also sympathize with the plight of the plaintiffs who really want to know, you know, what what the heck was going on at at the time? Were they you know, were they drunk and disorderly or did they have you know, did they have a good program and they just, you know, had an unfortunate advanced <laughs> attacker penetrate them? So um it'll be be interesting to see. So moving on to our final story, which uh, comes from Slashdot, and the title here is IT Workers Facing Layoffs Jolted by CEO's Message. So uh, so the, the story here is that a company named HCSC is apparently in the process of laying off about 500 of their IT workers. I think they, in total, have 27,000 employees. So it's, you know, it's, an, it's a significant percentage of their overall population. One of the, the contentions in this article is that apparently a couple of weeks before the, 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 the announced layoffs, the CEO mentioned something about how, uh, you know, the baby boomers, baby boomers, try that again. The baby boomers are moving on to their next chapter. Uh, but you know, now the allegations are, well, the baby boomers are moving on to the next chapter because they're being replaced with, uh, you know, with foreign workers. But, um, I, I, you know, I, it's not actually clear that you know, it's going to be based on age or anything like that. This, I'm sure there's some salacious headline clickbaiting stuff going on here. But, <laughs> um, you know, I think the, the, the kind of the core point is that a lot of organizations are uh, are, are taking, and in, in, in this particular case, HCSE points out that they are they're trying to become more strategic with the staff they have and move the, what they view as the, you know, the less strategic things like IT operations and help desk and stuff and move that to, um, you know, to outsourced providers. And that's a increasingly common model, uh, but it has its own risks, right? Yep. And, and, you know, I, I do think one of the challenges that we may face in IT security is we're expensive as we get further in our career. Yeah. And, you know, there's certainly the concept of, you know, as you get a little older, you may not be as easily employable, whether that's defendable with data, tough to say, but the concept is out there. And, you know, that's one thing I think about is, is as we start getting to the peak of our careers, especially for those of us who don't choose to go the CISO route, how do you stay relevant and employable if you get too expensive and they're offshoring a bunch of stuff to workers overseas who are much cheaper, I think is a real concern, especially because, you know, I, I don't know, you know, there's sometimes a skill set gap and a cultural gap and a language gap and, and, and quality gap at times, depending on how it's outsourced and how it's run. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a more challenging environment to work in when you've got a lot of work being done overseas by people in, you know, eight hour time zone differences. It, it certainly has an impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I will say I, I have experience with uh, with outsourcing IT operations, and and it can be it can be done well, and it can be done 
not well. Um, I I, do, I think there is a this is kind of a multi layered cake, right? Like you like you had said, it it does occur to me that IT security feels, and I know that there's probably a whole lot of people who are going to disagree with me. So you know, go ahead and fire up your your Twitter hate cannon. Um, but you know, back in the back in the '90s, late '90s and early 2000s, there were a ton of Java programmers. I mean, you, you if you could spell Java, you could get a job as a Java programmer. And it kind of feels that way right now um, in the cybersecurity industry. Although I will, I do know there are a lot of people who are are frustrated and and not able to find a for, find work. So. Maybe it's not actually as bad as I'm thinking, but point is, over time, this is going to become this skill. This skill set through through some, you know, yet maybe yet to 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 be seen way will become commoditized. And and as that happens, you know, it's going to make sense for organizations to do that in uh, in the cheapest way possible. And so we are, you know, at the, end, at the end of the day, we're not special snowflakes. And um, you know, and, and the, maybe those of us who who started podcasts will will you know rule the world someday. Yeah, we'll finally have to start taking sponsors <laughs> That's just, right. just to eat. But I, I think, especially if you look at how expensive we are and how there's such a shortage of security folks, in theory, we are ripe for a disruptive event. That's a perfect circumstance for a disruption of the market. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Now, I don't know what that disruption will be. I can't predict it. If I could, I'd probably be a lot more rich. But I think I think we also cannot – I think fundamentally where I was kind of going with the story is, is we cannot be sort of complacent with our current skill set and our current position in industry. It will change. That's a, that's a really good point. And, and we will go from – being able to, you know, in essence, be a seller's market with our skill set, to being a buyer's market where we may be hurting, uh, if we go about things the way we're doing now. So, you know, this although it wasn't directly focused on IT security, just the concept that 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 companies are thinking this way and and continuing to think this way. There's no way we're going to stop this. You know, you, you can't stop this kind of momentum. It's it is too strong. It is too fiscally responsible of companies to go down this path for them not to explore it. And it's not going to be fixed by legislation. It's going to be fixed by whoever you vote into office. It's it's going to happen. So as always, I think that the important message is we have to think of ourselves as independent contractors who constantly have to keep our skill sets marketable, current, and capable. And those skill sets aren't just technology skill sets or security skill sets it's the soft skills it's the communication skills it's it's everything because i'll tell you i have gone through companies gone through layoffs at companies especially the first round of layoffs at startups are really interesting because what i saw was it was an excuse to get rid of a lot of people that were pain in the asses and they could be technically brilliant but if they didn't get along well with a team they might be gone yeah you're, you're you know. right, <clears throat> and and I, I I think I think there is a concentration of people who, um, what's the right word, prima donna ish, right? Well, what book did you read in it? No, no, no it's it's just life experience. <laughs> right? 
You know, oh, so it's going to be in the book you're writing. Huh? Yeah, well, right, right. My <laughs> memoirs after I retire. I'm going to try to beat that joke into the ground, let me tell you. But but speaking of uh, keeping you know skills current, right? Just saying. Yeah? Just saying. Yeah. What, writing a book? No, no, reading. Oh, reading. Reading, oh, yes. You don't, you don't even read. You have Audible. You just listen. Listen to books. Well, that, that's true. Mm-hmm. Now, serious question. Do you find retention of technical knowledge uh, similar, the same, better when you're reading versus listening? I, I typically Do don't. Personal? I typically don't re- don't listen to technical books. So the, okay. the the audiobooks I listen to tend to be, and I and I think in general the audiobooks generally are are uh, are, are not highly technical. I mean, they're they tend to be more conceptual. Okay. Well, let me ask this a different way. Do you think you absorb knowledge as well? When you're uh, listening versus reading, probably not. Hmm. Uh, but I but I will typically listen to them um, more than once, and gotcha. so so uh, whereas I, I I will typically not read a book more than once. I will often l- listen to an audio book more than once because of the convenience factor. Yeah, well, there's it's just a time. It's it, you know I have I take the dog for uh, two forty five minute walks a day. You know that's an hour and a half mm-hmm. a day. Every day, seven days a week, you know, that's that 45 minutes. What, what, what is she? P shy? What? 40... She's got to check her P mail at every <laughs> stinking mailbox. <laughs> wow. I had no idea the show was going to go there today. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. 45 minutes. That's well, right. you know, it's good. It keeps you healthy. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more to keep her healthy. Right. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, so yeah, I, I think you're 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 spot on. It is incumbent on each of us to keep our skills current and keep ourselves employable. That keeps us valuable to our current employer, and also is a is a good. Um, you know, it 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 just helps, in my view, um, your your well being, right? To know that you remain employable, uh, and if if you are keeping your skills up to date and, and whatnot. So um, you, at the end of the day, right, we, we're here, we're here for our families and, and ourselves. We gotta, we gotta take care of ourselves. So yeah, get on it. you know, that also applies to knowing when the employer with may not be the right fit for you any longer. But true enough. True enough. So uh, anything else you wanted to, to say in this one? Uh, no, no, I think we kind of beat that into the ground. All right. Good deal. Well, uh, that's it for the show. I, for those of you who will be at B-Sides Atlanta, I look forward to seeing you. Um, you know, don't be shy. I'm, you know, I'm shy. I'll, I'll probably be wearing black tennis shoes. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're like me and you're, you're, you're <laughs> diverting your eye, get your eye contact, you'll, uh, that's how you'll, you'll see me. So, um, <clears throat> <laughs> Yes, yes. It's a joke. At, at least you're wearing deodorant now, so they can't find you by your smell. That's an improvement. Well, you know, the the judge warned me. <laughs> so uh, so you can find the links uh, to all the stories we talked about today on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter uh, at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at malicious link and uh, just oh, a couple of quick shout outs. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, one, 
we have a Slack channel now. Oh, that's I hear right. it's it's hip with all the kids these days. I you yeah, know it is hip with all the kids. Yes, it's like RSC grown up. Right. I I need to spend more time on the Slack channel. I've been failing, but we do have it, and yeah. uh, I don't think we've talked about it on the show yet. I think we just tweeted about it. That's correct. We we do, and it has uh, I don't know 150 people in it now. So it's uh, you know it's it's a fun little fun little way to uh, communicate with your fellow podcast listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. so, some interesting discussions in there, including on uh, cooking. There's a I'm actually about to start a cooking sub channel because there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, cooking discussions going on. Now, are we talking like cooking meth, or what are we talking here? I mean. I'm not going to judge, I guess. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the other thing, uh, thank you yet again to our Patreon donors. You guys are amazing. I, it's still just cognitive dissonance to the extreme that I think about the fact that there are people out there who just give us money. That's And, and if you are so inclined, we will be thrilled and amazed and incredibly appreciative. Uh, if you so choose, you can find the Patreon donation button on our website. That's right. And and that money, by the way, goes to Jerry's meth habit. I mean, to paying for the show <laughs> and the bandwidth, and uh, that's it. I mean, we are we are sponsor-free, so nobody's editorializing our content. It's just us. Exactly. I should I should say, not editorializing, controlling the what's, – what's the appropriate word? There's no editorial control being exerted by an extraordinary party. That's, that's right. We are, right. Uh, we are free thinkers here. I mean, the only thing, and I'll be completely transparent and honest with you guys, is we really can't talk about our current jobs much. That's about the only thing that really is censored because it's obviously ethical issues and, uh, con- you know, uh, also against some paperwork we sign to keep stuff confidential. So that's about the only thing you'll find us not able to talk about. True, true. And, you know, if we did talk about it, then we would have to use the donations to uh, pay for, you know, legal funds. So. <laughs> And and rent and, and rent yeah we would we would certainly have to uh, you know up the up the fee for the show <laughs> at least two or three times so anyway right. sorry for beating the That's dead horse go ahead <laughs> have a have a good weekend we'll talk again next weekend take care everyone thanks bye bye bye.